Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, one of the most challenging things that uh, humanity has experienced um, throughout, throughout history is uh, a confusion of where we begin um, and where God begins, or where we end and where God begins. Or, put another way, perhaps in a stronger way, how is it that each of us isn't God? Because deep down, as, as the Ishbitzer Rebbe, the Beis Yaakov, um, second Ishbitzer Rebbe says, deep, deep, deep down, every single person believes that they created themselves. And that's, that's a, it seems illogical, because you know you didn't create yourself. You know you have parents who created you. And yet, nonetheless, deep, deep down, every single person believes that they created themselves. Which means that on some fundamental level, every single person on some level actually thinks that they're God. So where, where, does, where does God fit in? If our minds are wired, hardwired, to think that from birth, that means we have to undo that thought. Part of our work in this world is to realize that, that God is God and um, an aspect of his creation. In other words, that, that as clear and as simple and as logical as that is, of course I'm an aspect of God, and of course I'm one of his creations, and of course I'm not God. Those things, we're not born thinking. <laughs> we're actually born thinking the opposite of those things. And so it becomes the work of every single person's um, uh, life to be able to cultivate and to rewire their understanding of their role in creation. So with that in mind, God gives us an absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing mitzvah. And it's called Shemitah, and it's also called Yovo, which are two different aspects of it, and we'll get into the difference of it. Every just, just to start off, every seventh year is a Shemitah year. We'll explain what that means in a moment. And every 50th year is a Yovel year. Okay? And again, we'll, we'll explain what those terms mean. So you have a cycle of every seven years and a cycle of seven cycles. So seven cycles of seven will lead to the Yovel year, which is also translated in English as the Jubilee year. Okay, so let's translate those terms before we go on. So every seventh year, what happens is, is that you can't cultivate the land. Now remember, for most of history, people have been, um, we've had agrarian economies, meaning people have been farmers, in simple language. And they've gotten their, their livelihood by, by planting crops and things like that and living off the land. So if you're told that you can't plant crops in the seventh year, that's, that's, a, that's a very big deal, right? And, but, but you're able to sort of harvest the fruit that naturally grows, not the stuff that you planted because you're not allowed to plant. So there is some sort of sustenance off the land, but it's not like a major crop which leads to like your, your, your major sort of like receiving of your, your income of that year. So a person has to have tremendous faith. Now what happens in... What happens in the 50th year? 
In the 50th year, you have, to, you have to remember that when the Jews entered into the land of Israel, there was an apportioning of the land. Every tribe got a different section of the land of Israel. And by the way, it says that, that, that it was done by, um, with, divine, with divine guidance, that they reached in for lots, like a lottery, and that the lots actually spoke and they told which tribe, which piece of land they got. And just as a cultural aside, that's a very big element in the Harry Potter books. Because they had different houses where the people were assigned to, with different personalities. And the, the hat, the sorting hat, would tell you which, ha- which house you belong in. So, so this was... Um, you know, I, I don't know what her inspiration for that was, but you see that this is from the Medrash. Rashi brings this on the Torah. So each, um, each tribe got the portion of the land that best suited them. Like, like for, for instance, Zvulun, where they were businessmen. And so they did a lot of shipping. And so their, their um, portion was on the coast of Israel, right by the water. So, so the portion of the land corresponded to what their personality was and helped them, helped them realize, you know, who they were and, and different things like this. Okay. So, so the relationship between us and the land, every, it, it could be, so every person got a piece of land and, and many times it would be that a person would need money and they were able to sell their piece of land to someone else. Okay? But what happened was, in the 50th year, that's the Yovel year, right? So that's 7 times 7, right? 7 times 7 cycles. That would be the 50th year. If you sold your land, it would revert back to you. So you got your land back. Because it was your land. This was your, your, your family heritage. So this is an amazing, this is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. We'll, we'll get into the implications of it in a moment. It also would be that anyone who was a slave in the seventh year would go free. So someone who was a slave was someone who had a lot of debts and they would, they would essentially apprentice themselves. The, the modern understanding of, of slavery, like what happened to, say, the blacks in, um, in the South in America, is not a parallel for what we call the Hebrew slave in, in, in the Torah. I'll give you a few examples. Um, so when we talk about slavery, and the Torah concept of slavery, we always have to keep this in mind because it's not what you would immediately think. It says in the, in the Talmud, that, um, that, that the slave had to be basically treated the same as the master. So, for instance, whatever food the master ate, the slave had to eat the same food. So that's, that's already a radical, <laughs> it's a radical difference. Listen to this, even more so. If there was one pillow, there was only one pillow in the household, the slave got it, not the master. Okay, so you can see that the concept of slavery, or what's translated as slavery, it's probably just a horrible translation because it leads you to a whole, you know, erroneous series of thoughts, what it was. Um, But nonetheless, 
If someone were a slave in the seventh year, they would go free. So it was so the seventh year, you you couldn't plant the ground, the slaves would go free. In the fiftieth year, which was seven times seven cycles, all the land that you sold would revert back to you. And as the correlation to that, if you were like a real estate mogul, right? You were like really successful acquiring plots of land, you would have to give back all the land. <laughs> right? So, so now let's let's get back, now that we have the basic terms down, let's 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 understand what's going on here. Because it's very amazing. Again, we started with this concept that we're all born hardwired with this concept that deep, deep down we all think we created ourselves. Right? Now, historically speaking, one of the absolute sort of like foundations of power has been the ownership of land. Right? Like, think about how many times you've seen this line in a TV show or a movie or a cartoon. This is my land! <laughs> Get off my land! <laughs> right? And, and, and what, just psychologically, what is the connection? This is my land, I rule it, um, this, no one says this part, but this is what follows in terms of one's emotional intelligence. I'm God! Because I own this, and this is mine. Right? So now, imagine... You know, we have an expression in English that, that I like, which is that he pulled the carpet from under me, right? Imagine you're standing on a carpet and someone just pulls it from under you. What happens? You fall flat on your face, right? So God, every seventh year, says, this land, you can't, you can't work it because it's not yours. You don't own it. I own it. And if you bought it, it goes to someone else. I mean, God is literally pulling the land from under our feet. And then all of a sudden we realize something so profound and so intense, which is that I'm just a guest in this world. Because one of the absolute major sort of like um, connections between me and a power that's false between me and a power that I don't really have is my ownership of land. And once you remove that from people's minds, all of a sudden, people's personalities change. The culture changes. And I'll tell you something. Not, not you know, not, not to speak badly about... Um, you know, our people, but, but in the Tanakh, it says that we had a lot of trouble keeping this mitzvah of Shemitah. Um, and not only that, it, but it says that anyone who was able to keep it, the idea of not cultivating the land in that year, because you really are going to wonder, where's my food going to come from? And it says in the Torah itself, God is going to give you a special blessing that the crop in the sixth year is going to be triple the normal crop. So that you'll have for that year and that you'll have the year, the next year when you would normally be planting and you'll have the remainder of the previous year so you're going to get extra, extra, you know, crops so that you shouldn't worry what are you going to eat. And then 
Um, another commentator, I'm not sure which one, says something also very interesting. And I've seen this in my life, and if you, if you think about it, probably you've experienced it also. Sometimes you can take a small bite of something and you're full. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but I've experienced that. God can put a blessing in food where you don't need a lot of food in order to be full. Sometimes you have to eat a lot to be full, and sometimes something strange happens. You take one bite and you're full. And so, so how God put the blessing in the food, it's not exactly clear. I'm sure he did it different ways at different times. But sometimes it would look like not much, but somehow it would last. Have you ever had this experience? I've had this experience where there was a small pot of food and somehow, and a lot of people at the table, and somehow the food just kept on coming out of the pot. Did you ever have that experience? Yeah. I've had that experience. We wax this house every week. Yeah. <laughs> so, so God has many ways of, of, of feeding us. Many, many ways. Um, but but this, is, this is something really worth considering and, and contemplating. The severing of the connection between a person and ownership of the land as a transformational consciousness, right? Someone said, well, it's like Earth Day, but it's no, it's Earth Year, <laughs> right? This is, this is a whole nother thing. Now, now let's, go, let's go further with this, which is, which is that I, I, I was thinking about this, you know, what, what would happen on the 50th year what would happen in the 50th year is it was, they would sound the, uh, the chauffeur. And um, let's just put a lot of these elements together. So in the 50th year, not only, are the, not only in the Yovel year, that's the seven times seven cycle, are the slaves going free, right? But, um, but also the land is, is also can't be planted. So you have two things, or, and all the land also returns to you, rather. So you have two major things coming together in the 50th year, okay? And you would blow the shofar. The, the, the verse in the Torah says on Yom Kippur, but there's a debate in the Gemara, was it on Rosh Hashanah, was it on Yom Kippur? But whatever it is, God wants us to be thinking about Yom Kippur, clearly. So it says, uh, it says Yom Kippur. And you would blow the shofar. Now, for a shofar to be halachic, meaning to say the type of shofar that is in accordance with, with Jewish law, it has to be curved. It has to be curved. It can't be straight. I'm sure there are many animals that have horns that go straight. You can't use that for a shofar, even though you could probably make a horn sound out of it. It's got to be curved. All right? And not only that, but it's got to be a broken sound. What they call a trua, which is do 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 or do do do, meaning it's not one long blast. And that's the sounding, that's the sounding of the that's the sounding of the shofar. And look at look at how deep this is. Because when when God created the world. He did it through sound. Meaning to say, God spoke the world into creation. 
Now, God doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a body. But the rabbis are just giving us this type of imagery just so we can wrap our minds around it, right? But there is, and I know super string theory talks about it, there is some sort of essential vibrational energy which informs the world from just a physics standpoint. And so when you're speaking, when you're speaking, this vibrational energy is coming into the world and it's an aspect of one of just the the facets of creation and the creation of the world. Now, it also says, when God created us, he blew our souls into our body. Right? So the shofar blowing is sort of like a, a recreation, because we're doing it on Yom Kippur, which is like a rebirth, or Rosh Hashanah, which is it's a new world, it's a new year, it's a, it's a rebirth. So we're blowing the shofar, and that parallels God blowing our souls into our body. And we're making this noise which parallels the speaking, the, 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 the sound, the vibrational creation of the world, which was done through speaking the world into creation. So now let's put it all together, okay? Remember, slaves go free, land goes back to the people, and also you can't plant the land. So you have two aspects, which is a person is being reborn through the blowing of the shofar, which parallels God blowing our souls into our body. And God created the entire world through speaking the world into creation, through sound. So a whole new world is being made as well. Now now, now listen, listen, because here's the point. But it has to be a broken sound because a new world is coming about. So it's two, then silence, two, then silence, and it's a curved shape because the new world that's coming into effect is not a linear extension of the previous world. It's curved. It's going in a brand new direction because the person who was a slave is no longer a slave. The person who didn't have his land is getting his land back. The person who can plant his land can't plant his land anymore because he's newly aware that everything belongs to God. In other words, in the blowing of the shofar itself, you have the new direction of the world and a resetting of the world through the blowing and the silence and the blowing and the silence. Everything is, is, is taking shape again. And I'd like to call this utopian economics. Because what we have at least in current society, is on one side we have communism and socialism on one side. And on the other side we have capitalism. Right? But there was another economic system that was put into effect before any of this, which is Yovo, which is Shemitah, which we have in the Torah, which is this combination of being able to acquire land and everything like that, but at a certain point, you recognize that it all belongs to God and everyone gets their land back. Everyone gets a second chance. Because as we've said over and over again, the world was created 
right? What's the beginning of the, of the blueprint of all of creation? The word breishis. And what does breishis mean? As Reb Shlomo says in the name of Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai, with beginnings. The world is created out of the fabric of beginnings. Every moment is a new moment. And we see it here in this amazing economic system that, that God created called Shemitah and Yovel, that even in the economic realm, there's a chance for a new beginning and a new start because the whole world is made out of new beginnings and new starts. So it would have to penetrate the economics of the world as well. And, and here you see, the, 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 it's, 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 totally, it's totally in place. And it's an, amazing, it's an amazing middle point between pure capitalism. What's pure? We don't have capitalism in America, by the way. We have this combination of capitalism and socialism. Pure capitalism is, you know, if you can get a, a four-year-old working in a factory, it's all good, right? And if a guy is working in a dangerous mine and he gets his arm chopped off in the mine, who told you to get your arm chopped off? <laughs> Right? Who, who told you to, to work in a mine that was going to collapse? That's your problem. It's not my problem. I'm paying you a, a, a wage. That's pure capitalism. Right? Then, around, at least in America, around the time of the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt instituted what we call today safety nets. That's social, that's social security, things like this where, you know, workers' compensation, all, all these type of laws have developed over the years which protect the worker, right? But these are more socialistic policies. So America is more of a combination of capitalism and socialism. It's not pure capitalism. But here comes this Torah system that somehow, you see, what's the problem with pure capitalism <coughs> versus um, pure, say, communism or socialism? Right? In, and you see this in, in Europe today, which is much more socialistic. There's a disincentive for the worker to work. Because the worker is given so many promises by the government, so much vacation time, so many guarantees. The unions are so strong. They can go on strike at any moment. They can bring down the employer at any moment. The taxes are so high. Who needs to work? <coughs> right? Why should I work? Then, if you take it to the, the American side, right, the, the, the person has a chance to make much more money. So they're much more motivated, right? But it could be at the cost of the sensitivity and the humanity of the boss-employee relationship, right? So all of a sudden, God gives us this amazing system, right, which allows the person to have great incentive, right? Like from the capitalistic point of view, you can acquire land, you can make fortunes, but at the same time, you have to be very sensitive to your workers. And at the same time, you have to realize that ultimately everything is in God's hands and it all belongs to God. Now, this system, we're looking at it on a macro level right now, okay? Which is this 49-year cycle, right? Divided up into seven-year cycles. 
culminating in the 50th year. This we experience on a micro level in an amazing way every single year, and we're in this period right now, and that's when we go from Pesach to Shavuos. Of course, Pesach, we're leaving Egypt, and we're on our way 50 days later to receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai on the 50th day. So again, you see this, you know, just face out this amazing thing of two systems of 50, right? And as we're going from our freedom to receiving the Torah, we have this mitzvah to count every single day. Sfiris HaOmer, right? But, very interestingly, we don't count the 50th day. Now you would think, and by the way, on the 50th day, just to make the parallel even stronger, we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, and it said God blew a shofar that the entire world heard. And unlike human beings, when we blow the shofar, it gets louder and louder, and then you run out of breath. It gets softer and softer. When God blew the shofar at Mount Sinai, it got louder and 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 louder. And louder. Right? Not, not like a human being. Beyond. Okay, so, so you have the blowing of the shofar both times on the 50th year and the 50th day. Okay. So, you would think if the whole point of counting is to get to the 50th day, that that's like going to be the real celebration. Like We count the number 50. And you know something? We don't count the number 50. You only count up to 49. So why, why is that? Like, it seems like the whole point is to get to 50. And the reason is because the 50th day, you can't put a number on. What happened on the 50th day was heaven came down to earth. That day is beyond time and space. It's beyond time and space. So you can't even put a number on it. And you see this in a number of different ways, which is that we celebrate... Shavuos, the receiving of the Torah, on the sixth day of Sivan, the sixth day of the month of the Jewish month of Sivan. Okay, if you look in the Talmud, it says that Moshe got the Torah on the seventh day of Sivan, <laughs> because Moshe asked for an extra day to prepare. So, if you think about it, these are all sorts of weird things. We don't count the fiftieth day. Why? That's the, that's should be the point. We don't celebrate the receiving of the Torah on the day that we got the Torah? Isn't that odd? Why? Why? Because again, it's beyond, it's beyond time and space. It's beyond time and space. I'll give you another example. All the Torah holidays in the Torah itself tells you which day of which month to, to celebrate it. Like Yom Kippur, it says the 10th day of the 7th month. Right? So, so Shavuos, the receiving of the Torah, it, for sure it's going to have a date in the Torah when you celebrate it. It doesn't have a date. It says, count 50 days from the time you left, from the day you left Egypt. Meaning, 50 days after Pesach is Shavuos. In other words, they tell you when it is, but they tell you when it is without actually pinning it to the calendar. Now, why don't they give you a date? 
Because the receiving of the Torah, the flow of the Torah, is beyond time and space. When we make the blessing every morning, we make the blessing before we learn Torah, or we should anyway, and it says, you know, basically, blessed are you, God, who selected us from all peoples, and it says, Asher Bacharbanim Amim V'natan Torah Et Torah To and gives us the Torah. It's, it's in the present tense. Wait a second, it, it happened a while ago. <laughs> it's in the present tense? Again, this is, this, is, this is the same idea. The flow, the divine energy, you don't pin it to a day. And even when you say the blessing over the Torah, you're saying it in the present tense because the flow of the Torah is coming down all of the time. It never stops. It's always present. It's all the time. I'll give you another example, which is that when, if I would say like this, I'm going to make a blessing over an apple. Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melchalam, Brei Priya Eitz, and then I realize, you know what, I don't want to eat this apple, I want to go to the movies. <laughs> so I put down the apple, and, and I, I go to the movies, then I come home and I go, now I want to eat the apple. So I pick up the apple, and maybe I say to myself, oh, I already made a blessing over this apple. No, that blessing, it, it's not, you, you'd have to make a new blessing. And the previous blessing that you made was, is a problem. That's called a bruchel of Atala. It's a, it's a problem. You used God's name in vain, basically. Okay? So, so why? Because halakhically speaking, there's something called a hefsik. A hefsik means a, a break or a separation. See, the reason why, like for instance on Shabbos, you wash your hands and then people sit at the table and you're not supposed to talk between the washing of your hands and the eating of the bread. Why? Because you don't want to make a hefsik. You don't want to make a separation between the two things. Basically, when you say the blessing, then you do the activity. And that's what it is. Okay? So how can it be, with that in mind, how can it be that when I say the blessing over the Torah in the morning, that if I want to learn, and I didn't learn any Torah, I went to shul maybe, then, uh, then I went to work, then before I went to bed, I took a book off my bookshelf and I, I learned a little Torah. So you would say to me, that's just like the apple. You said the blessing over the Torah in the morning, but you've made separations all day. For sure now, when you pull the Torah book off the shelf, you're going to have to say a new blessing over the studying of the Torah. Right? You don't have to do that. Why? Because you're doing Torah all day. <laughs> the whole world's made out of Torah. <laughs> you never stopped doing Torah. You never stopped. Because it's coming down all the time, and it's everywhere, and it's at every time. See, this is why we're not counting the number 50. This is why we're not saying that it's on this calendar day. This is why we're not even celebrating the holiday on the day that it happened. Because otherwise you'll start to think, oh, it was just an, an isolated event that happened a while ago. It's not. That can't be our consciousness when it comes to the Torah and our relationship with the Torah. So we're counting, 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 right? Right? till we get to the 50th day and we're going to 
connect that in Yovel in a moment, but let's keep on going. And uh, and I heard in the name of Rabbi Nachman something awesome, awesome, awesome. And I just double checked this because I was like, is this really the case? And it's like, I saw, of course it's the case. I saw it with my own eyes just yesterday. I counted again. And it's like, wow, you know? Which is, remember, what does it say? What does it say? Before we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, it says that we encamped at Mount Sinai, right? And the, the word for encamped is singular. So that's strange, you know, because remember, the Torah is divine. So if it's using a word in the singular, which should be in the plural, that's strange, right? Then, then God is telling us something. We have to figure out what is he telling us. So when, when it says that we encamped and it says it in the singular, the rabbis learned something very amazing from that, which is that there was total unity among the Jewish people. And as Rashi puts it, we were like one person with one heart, right? You had about approximately two and a half million people there. And we were all completely unified, like one person with one heart. And when we were unified like that, we were like a kli. A kli means a vessel. And um, the Magali Amukos points out that the word kli is chaf lamid yud. That's how you spell kli. And that also stands for Kohen Levi Yisrael. When they're all together, when there's unity, that makes a vessel. And the vessel is able to receive blessing, divine flow. Okay? So now listen to this. This is now back to the Rebbe Nachman Torah. If you take the 12 tribes of Israel and you count up the letters of their names, it's 49 letters. exactly what we're counting. 49 days showing you that all of the tribes were completely unified. All 49, all 49 letters like of the tribes completely together. And it shows you from that place of unity we were able to transcend and go to the 50th level. Beyond, beyond, beyond. Right? And one of the great teachings, one of the great teachings is, um, you know, from the Kutzka Rebbe, who says that when you meet a person who doesn't look like you, you're not surprised. So why are we surprised when we meet someone who doesn't think like us? <laughs> right? We can't be surprised when, when we meet someone who doesn't think like us. So one of the ways of fostering unity and creating togetherness is not to begin with an expectation that every person that you meet and talk with, even someone who's part of your community or part of your family, who all the more so you would expect to agree with you, right? Let's just lose that expectation that people agree with, with each one of us. If you lose that expectation, then okay, then you can engage with them, then you can appreciate the differences, right? Remember, when we talk about shalom, which is really the fullest divine peace, when we talk about the essence of peace, it doesn't mean homogeneity, meaning it doesn't mean that everyone, like what we long for, God, please make every single person identical. No, that's not our prayer. 
That's not what we're looking for. That every single person should be the same. Oh, that would be so wonderful. It's not it. <laughs> we can all be different. We can all be different. But then we respect each other's differences and we get along. Now, listen to this. The 49 days the B'nai Yisachar brings, the 49 days are divided into two parts. 32 and 17. 32 and 17 is 49, okay? 32 is, remember, the morning there, there, there was a, a plague that wiped out the students of Rabbi Akiva, and that's why this period was originally a very festive period, very happy period, right? In fact, the Ramban says something. You can think about this for a very, very long time. We have something called um, Cholamoid, right? So what's Cholamoid? So when you have like um, the festival of Pesach, Passover, or Sukkot, right? Those are, in, in Israel, we celebrate them for seven days. Outside of Israel, for eight days. But let's just talk about in Israel for, for, for now. The first day and the last day are holidays. And the middle days are called Cholamoid, which means that they're not actual festival days, meaning to say you could drive your car, you could, you know, you could go shopping, spend money, things like this, use electricity. But they're special days because they're still within the holiday. So you have to eat better food, you have to dress better. It's, it's better if you don't have to go to work. It's better not to shave. There are all sorts of things also, but it's not, it doesn't have the same status as the holiday itself. So these in-between days are called cholamoid, okay? So the Ramban says something amazing, which is that really Pesach and Shfuas is basically one big holiday, and that all these days in between, these 49 days in between, are cholamoid. And that's, that's, a, that's a very big thought, because unfortunately, today, people don't even know what Shavuos is. You, you, this is the, the entire cornerstone, the foundation of, of the entire religion of Judaism, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And people, oh, Shavuos, what's that? It's, it's a big wake-up call of, you know, where we're at right now. Um, but we only left Egypt in order to receive the Torah. So it's one holiday. It's one holiday. It's not we left Egypt and then God gave us the Torah and then we wandered around. It's, it's not disconnected events. It's one holiday. Which is why the Ishbitzer Rebbe explains that the egg on the Pesach Seder plate, right? People want to know, what's the egg for? So the Ishbitzer Rebbe, I heard this from Rebeli Chaim Karlbach, Olav um, says says that the egg is just half the story. What's the other half of the story of the egg? The chicken that comes out of the egg. So he says that the reason why we have an egg on the Passover plate the Seder play, is because Pesach is just half the story. The other half of the story is Shavuos, receiving the Torah. So it's a reminder that we're just at the beginning of the holiday, really. 
Okay. So we see the importance of unity and everything like that. Now, each day that we count toward that number 50 has a different sphera correlation. And there are seven sphero. Remember, there are seven lower sphero. Okay? The Zion Tachtonim, they're referred to in like um, holy books. So, so this is Chesed, Gvura, Teferit, right? So that's kindness, strength, harmony, beauty. Then Netzach, eternity, Hod, right? Glory. And then you have, you know, those are harder to translate. Yesod, foundation, and Malchus. Like that's this realm, kingship, right? But without going into all the Sfirot and things like that, basically each one then has divisions within it. Because you have those seven, which are the seven weeks, remember 49 days we're counting? But each one of those then have divisions within it. So you have Chesed Shabbat Chesed, Gvur Shabbat Chesed, Teverit Shabbat Chesed, and it goes all the way down. And then you start again with the next week. When you get up to Machus, after which is the last one, you get up to Gvora, and you start again. Chesed Sheba Gvora, you know, Gvor Sheba Gvora, Teferit Sheba Gvora, and you go down all the way down to Machus, and then you begin the next cycle. Okay. So, what's the point of all that? <laughs> well, okay, it's super deep and it's a big topic, but let's let's get practical in terms of our lives. It's these these sfirot are also known as the um, as 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 the, the the lower seven midos. Now midos. So why are we talking about midos? Midos means character traits, and we're going to get into this in a moment why we're going through our character traits, why we're tr- trying to concentrate on our personality and, and fixing our personality leading up to receiving the Torah. So now let's, let's double back for a moment. So really, like the Ramban says, this whole period between Pesach and Shavuos should really be this giant cholamoid. It is a cholamoid. It should be like a giant holiday. But a very tragic event happened, which was that Rabbi Akiva's students were wiped out. And, but the plague, be, why? Because they weren't respecting each other enough. Okay, there's volumes of Torah on what that means exactly. But basically, it's like we were saying, like, other people are going to think different ways. And that's not, you shouldn't be insulted by that. <laughs> shouldn't be insulted by that. You have to celebrate the fact that everyone's got a different point of view. Sometimes it gets very frustrating. But it can't be a cause of disrespect. It can't be. And they said that the disrespect that the students showed each other, especially students as great as those of, of Rabbi Akiva's, that this triggered a plague and wiped out thousands of students. And as a result, during these first 32 days, we take on different aspects of mourning. We don't listen to live music. We don't get haircuts. Things like this. We don't have weddings. Things like this because we want to honor their memory. It's a period of national mourning to this day. On the 33rd day, 
That's Lagba Omer. That's right. Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai left this world and he revealed the Zohar. Okay? It, it, it changes. The energy shifts. And all of a sudden now it becomes much more of a happy time. Okay? So from this you see that there's a division of 32 days and 17 days. Right? Because the plague stopped on the 33rd day. Right? Or on the, right? So you have 32 and 17. So 32 and 17 says the B'nai Yisachar, 32 is the gematria of Lev, which means heart, and 17 is the gematria of Tov, which means good. So this 49 days are divided into a good heart. <laughs> 32 and 17, Lev Tov. So again, and remember it says in Pirkei Avos, they say, well, what's the, what, what should you pursue the, the most? What character trait should you pursue the most? So one person says a good eye. You should see people with, you know, in a favorable light. Another person says a good neighbor. Another person says you should understand what's coming from your actions, right? Another person says a good heart. And, and they say, yeah, you know what? A good heart is the answer because all those other things are contained in a good heart. If you have a good heart, you have all those other things. Okay. So, so you see that the leading up to receiving the Torah is developing a good heart and fixing our mitos. Now, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who is, you know, perhaps the greatest student of the Ari, HaKodesh, said the following. What's worse, do you think? Ha- making an Avera, that means that you're doing something against the Torah, like it says, don't do this, and I did it, Right? Or a bad character trait. Which one is worse? And you would say, well, if I have a bad character trait, you know, what's so bad about that? So he says a bad character trait is worse. And the reason is because if you did, if a person did an Avera, they did something wrong, that's an isolated event and they can fix that. But if they have a bad character trait, they're like a fountain of Averas. Like just mistakes are pouring out of them all the time because they've got a part of their personality that hasn't been fixed yet. Because I get very angry. And that's just me. If you want to accept me, you just have to accept the fact that I get angry. Right? Because that's my business because I'm God. Right? Again, no one says that because no one would have the chutzpah to say it. But that's what's in the back of the back of their mind whether they're aware of it or not. Anyone who thinks that they have the right to be obnoxious <laughs> thinks on some level that they're God. <laughs> Even if they never have that thought in a million years. It doesn't matter. They think that they have a level of um, right that they simply don't have. So... So now let's get back to this word midos, because this is a very fundamental teaching right now and very, very practical. Midos, we're translating as personality traits, and that's a proper translation, by the way. But what's the literal translation of midos? And the answer is measurements. Measurements. Now think, now, now this is going to get very strong. Let's take anger, since we're talking about anger. The Rambam says 
that an employer, a boss, is allowed to get angry at his workers, listen carefully, he can go, you workers are lazy! What are you doing? But only under the condition that he uses his anger as a mask, but that it's not really in his heart. (laughs) He can (coughs) pretend to be angry because he has that right if the workers are lazy. But he doesn't actually have the right to get angry. The angry. The anger can't be in his heart. Just he can wear it as a mask in the appropriate circumstances. Right? Now from this we see a very practical um, demonstration of what it means, midos and measurements. You can utilize your personality traits. Everyone has different personality traits. These are to be celebrated. These were given to you by God. Right? But you have to use them in the proper measure. Now, I'll give you a, 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 a more disturbing example. Okay? When it talks about incest between a brother and a sister in the Torah, it uses the word chesed. Chesed means kindness. So, so from this, you see something very, very interesting, which is that usually we think that kindness, chesed-like, you know, what could ever be wrong with chesed? But here you see that even chesed, if there's too much affection between a brother and a sister, that that affection can be absolutely out of bounds and completely forbidden. So again, even something like kindness, which you would think like, how could you misuse kindness? Even kindness has to exist in its proper measurements. Right? If you know that someone is is going to take the money that you're going to give them and immediately buy heroin with it, that may not be the best thing to do for that person at that moment, even if you love them to pieces. So, So everything has to be, if you want to fix your mitos, if you want to fix your personality, you have to look at in what measurement, what is the proper measurement for each character trait. Now let me tell you why I think that this is a very, very positive teaching. First of all, let me just say one more thing about anger and not having anger in your heart. I'll tell you one of the absolute main, like maybe perhaps even the number one thing I learned from Reb Shlomo, I mean, I would put it up that, that high, was that a person, you have to remove the anger from your heart. And this is, this is very, very big. You can't have anger in your heart. Your heart, your heart, you know, I'll tell you something. Reb Shlomo, was in Germany. And when he was in Germany, the, 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 the television uh, cameras were, were wanted to interview him. And they said to him, one of the reporters said to him, do you hate us? Right? And, you know, there would be good reason to, for him to... He was from Germany. He was exiled from Germany. So you know what he answered? 
he said, you know something? He said, if I had two hearts, one heart could be for loving and one heart could be for hating. He says, but I only have one heart, so I have to use it for loving. (laughs) So, anger, but not in your heart. It, It can't enter your heart. And if you have anger in your heart, find out why and forgive. Just forgive. Forgive God. A lot of people are super angry at God. Super angry. Super angry. And so many people who say they don't believe in God, if you start to ask them questions, where did the world come from? How is this? It's Everything is so ordered. Like the plants you... Put a seed in and a plant comes out. How could it be? Everyone who's born, for the most part, have two eyes, a nose. Why not one eye and two noses if everything is so random? You say everything's random. If you start to talk with a reasonable person and you bring up things like this, after a while they go, you know something? Yeah, there's a creator. But you just told me that you didn't believe in God. And again, if you try to turn this into a debate, you'll never get to the conclusion that I'm telling you. I'm telling you, if you're talking lovingly and accepting, and you're not trying to grind an agenda with someone, just talking about a a real, open, sincere conversation, you'll get to the point, then why do you say there's no God? Well, I do recognize there's a God. Well, why do you say there's no God then? Because I'm so angry. Because if there's really a God, how come this happened? And how come that happened? And how come this didn't happen? And how come that didn't happen? I'm so angry. But they believe. Everyone believes. Everyone believes. Even if they tell you they don't believe. They do believe. But you have to get them to the place where they can be in touch with their own emotions and work it through. Because most people are just a big knot. Their brain has been tied into a knot. Their heart has been tied into a knot. And they can't think through their own anger. They don't, they, don't have, they don't have the tools. But I can tell you that, that, the, that the path to cleansing your heart of anger is forgiveness. Forgive God. And here's another giant person you have to forgive. Yourself. You have to say, okay, I set goals for myself and I didn't achieve them yet. And you know what? I'm not such a bad person. (laughs) I've done a lot of good things. You know, okay, so maybe I didn't do that. I would have liked to have done that. I, I forgive myself. You forgive God, you forgive yourself, forgive your parents. I, I, I promise you, your parents didn't say, I can't wait to have a child to abuse him. This is going to be so much fun. I get to slap him around. If there's someone I need to yell at, oh, it's, I'll always have company. No, no, one, no one does that. If, they, if, if you had parents that were cruel, and there are a lot of, there's genuine cruelty out there. Genuine cruelty. It was a sign of their own imperfection and the sign of their own brokenness. And that, by the way, that doesn't excuse them. I'm not excusing them. 
I'm not excusing them. But they didn't do it because that was their plan. You know? And uh, if you can do it, then you can purify your heart. Because you can't trafe up your heart. You need your heart. You need your heart to live. And so much of the way you experience the world is just a projection, as we've talked about, of your own feelings from your heart. Like we were saying before, that life is one big Rorschach test. And basically, what you see in the world is just a projection of what you're feeling. And if you want to see a beautiful world, you've got to clean out your heart. That's, that's just the bottom line. And if you want to clean out your heart, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. And it may not happen in one second, like, I forgive. You might have to really work on it. It might, it might be a multi-year process. But it's super valuable. And you will be the beneficiary of it. Because a lot of us think that, oh, you know how I'm going to get them back? I'm never going to forgive them. And guess what? They just messed you up even further. <laughs> you think you're getting them. They're getting you even worse. First they did the thing to mess you up. And now they're continuing to mess you up by making you think that you're messing them up. <laughs> we don't have to control each other and we don't have to have the last word and we don't have to get revenge. We don't. We don't. We just have to move on with our lives and we will be the beneficiary. We win when that happens. We win. So, so this is all under the category of the 49 days, of the Lev Tov, of the purifying our hearts in order to receive the Torah. And then you can really receive the Torah. You know? And, uh, and it's a great thing. And I'll just, we'll just wrap it up with this um, one more thing, you know? I had a beautiful moment it was very special to me, so just share it with you. But it, it will come at the end of this teaching. So, we're learning all these things about Shemitah and Yovel, right? And by the way, I started, I started this point earlier. Let me just wrap it up here. We weren't always able to keep the mitzvah of Shemitah because it's such a challenging uh, thing not to not to work the land for a whole year. It's very very challenging. And again, the rabbis say that anyone who was able to do it was a gibor. When when we were when we were exiled from the land of Israel, the rabbis teach that the reason why we were exiled from the land was because we didn't keep the mitzvah of shemitah. And they actually do a calculation. I haven't got the numbers for you. I'm sorry, but they show that the exact number of years that we were in exile, that we were kicked out of the land, was exactly equal to the number of Shemitahs that we didn't keep. So again, let's get into the divine logic of this. Because what did we say 
God was doing with this mitzvah of Shemitah and Yovel, giving back the land that you acquired, right? Or not working the land. God was saying that the earth belongs to me, right? That I'm God. That's what, that's what God was teaching us. That he was severing that, that connection between us and the land in a healthy way, in a spiritually healthy way. So if a person wants to hold on to the land for themselves and not keep that mitzvah, how is God going to teach us that the land doesn't belong to us? That the whole world is his? How about this? How about he kicks us out of the country? And says, okay, so you think the land is yours? Welcome to exile. You can't even be in your own land now. Now you have to be in a foreign land and wander around a foreign land. Now will you get the idea that the land doesn't belong to you? And you know, one of the, one of the, the, the persecutions that the, that the Jewish people suffered throughout the ages was that they weren't allowed to own land. They had to work other people's land. We had to work other people's land. It just shows you how fundamental this mitzvah is. Right? And how tied to the redemption it is too. Because if we can get it through our heads that the land doesn't belong to us, then maybe we can be right back in balance with the land. And that should be like the opposite of exile, which is redemption. At least that consciousness. Okay, so now this final point. So, we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's what we're talking about right now. But there's another Mount Sinai moment that I just want to discuss, which I just, I love this, which is that when it talks about our holy mothers having the tribes, right? So we're talking about like Sarah and, 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 and Rivka and, and Leah and Rachel. Um, the Torah uses a very, very interesting language. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm just going to quote you the Pasuk from uh, when Rachel has uh, Yosef, okay? So the word for that she became pregnant is, it uses here, v'tahar. Okay, so tahar means har. Do you hear the word? The word for mountain in Hebrew is har, like har Sinai. That means mount, mountain, okay? So the verb to become pregnant, right, is tahar. Taf is, 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 is the verb form. That's the letter which is to verbify it. So, so tahar means basically to become mountainized. <laughs> now why? Because when a woman becomes pregnant, it's like she has a mountain on her stomach. Right? Like a little mountain. And interestingly, Harsinai was called the smallest mountain. <laughs> right? So, so, okay, so, okay, so, so to become pregnant means to become mountainized, like a mountain. Like now all of a sudden you have a mountain. But which mountain? So remember, what is the, what is the Gomorrah say? That when you're in your mother's womb, an angel comes and teaches you the entire Torah. So when, you, when a woman gets a mountain on her stomach and there's an angel teaching 
the child the entire Torah. What mountain is that? It's Har Sinai. So Reb Shlomo, off of this, well, not off of that, that that's my thought, but, but, um, but relating to this, asks what, one of my favorite questions. He says, at Mount Sinai, we know that you know, all the Jewish people were there, right? Approximately two and a half million people heard God speak, which, by the way, is just a knockout punch to every other religion. Because every other religion, especially the monotheistic traditions, right? They say that the word of God came to one person. It's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? When God declared it to two and a half million people simultaneously and said that these mitzvahs are forever and that the other religions base their religion on the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and the Torah itself that was received said, you can't change any of the mitzvahs. If they wanted to create their own religion, fine. But to base it on the Torah, which says that the mitzvahs are forever, and that you can't subtract and you can't add, it invalidates their own, their own religion. <laughs> Better they should just say, you know, we got our own religion. But they base it as the foundational element of it, of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's a big problem. It's a very big problem. And everyone should know that the, that the entire world, I'm talking about other religions which base their theology on the giving of the Torah from Mount Sinai. I'm not naming oh, names, oh, but if you, if, you, if, you, if you use your it. head, you'll, you'll figure it out in a second. So, so, what are we told? We're told that you had two and a half million people there who all heard the word of God, every one of them, Right? And not only that, but that every Jew that was ever going to be born, their soul was present there. And every person who was ever going to convert to Judaism, their soul was also there at Mount Sinai. Right? So if that's the case, Reb Shlomo asks the following question. Why do you have to hear the Torah again in your mother's womb if you already were at Mount Sinai? <laughs> it's a good question. So he gives a, an amazing answer. He says, the Torah that we got at Mount Sinai, that Torah, that Torah was for what we had to accomplish as a nation. Right? But when you get the Torah inside your mother's womb, that Torah is what each and every person individually has to accomplish in their own life. So, so you have the national mission and then you have your individual job within it. 
Both are going on at the same time. And again, every single person, we're all God's children. Right? Right? Um, I, I, I hope that no one should misinterpret what I just said as, as, as disrespect for another creation of God. It's not another creation of God. But, but we, we say Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. We have to discuss the truth. Right? So, so if God made the whole world out of the Torah, of course every single person, whether they're Jewish or they're not Jewish, they have a share in the Torah. A hundred percent they have a share in the Torah. And we have what's called the seven universal mitzvot, the seven universal commandments. Or in Hebrew we say the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noah. Right? And that's on all of humanity. Because how could it be, if we're all God's children, that we don't all have a share in the Torah? So all of us have a share in the Torah. It's just that the Jewish people have this, this, this leadership role, essentially. And this, this, this commandment to be a light unto the nations which carries with it an enormous responsibility. An enormous responsibility. And anyone can become Jewish. It's not an exclusive thing. Right? And also we say, which is again, just you can taste the truth of Judaism in just this one statement, that all the righteous of the world have a share in the world to come. Can you imagine the religions that say that you're going to burn in hell unless you believe this particular thing? What? You mean I gave charity my whole life? I didn't walk past a poor person without giving charity? And you're telling me that I'm burning in hell for all of eternity because I don't believe in your guy? Are you, is that a joke? Are you joking with me? Do you think that's how God made the world? That's the God who made the world? That's the God who made kumquats and, and, and birds of paradise and chihuahuas and the beetles and, 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 and Van Gogh? Right? And the color orange? <laughs> I love orange. Purple? Purple? God didn't have to make purple. Come on. Like there's... So we say that the Torah says that all the righteous of the world have a share in the world to come. It has to be. It has to be. It has to be. It has to be. So so now I'm going to tell you that nice thing that happened and we'll stop. (laughs) So someone came up to me. Um and said, uh, I, was, I was learning the Parsha with my daughter um, last night at the Shabbos table, and she had a question. It says, Bahar, right? Bahar is the name of the, the, the Parsha. Bahar, B is a prefix in, in Hebrew. B means in. So she says, it says, in the mountain of Sinai? How could it, why does it say in Mount Sinai? <laughs> It should say at Mount Sinai, <laughs> not in Mount Sinai. So I, I gave over this Torah yesterday at the Happy Minion, and he sat down next to me and he said to me, he said, we looked in Rashi and we looked in Ankylos and we looked in all the, we got the Mikros Gedolos out and we looked in all the commentators. No one said, why does it say in Mount Sinai? And now I see in Mount Sinai because in the womb, right? <laughs> 
has to be. So he brought his daughter over to me and he said, tell her, tell her, tell her. I said, you tell her. He said, no, you tell her. <laughs> I said, okay. And she, her eyes lit up. She said, that's, that's my answer. So um, anyway, we should all be blessed. We should all fix our personality traits and understand that all the personality traits we have are good. They're all good. We just have to use them in the proper measurements. Right? When someone says, fix your personality, I don't know who's telling you that, but okay, I'm telling you that. Fix your personality! <laughs> when someone tells, in Hebrew it sounds nicer, tikkun amidos, it sounds fancier, right? Um, that they're not telling you, become a different person. That's not what it's about. Don't become a different person. God made you to be you. But use your personality traits in the right measurements. That's, that's what you have to do. It's not about becoming another person. Use it in the right measurements. And, um, and we all have to be together. We all have to be unified. And we have to understand that we're all God's children. And we all have a share in the Torah. And that God loves us to pieces. And... Um, He's just waiting for us. He's just waiting for us to get it together. But it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs>